Terry Crosby. Andy Steiger. Steve Kim. Welcome to the AC Podcast. On this podcast, we want to help you understand and speak the language of our culture and address questions being asked with intellectual honesty, gentleness, and respect. We're back for another week. I told you we would be. Did I not? I'm a man of my words. We're back. We're back. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> you got yeah. Steve's in the house. Surviving the pandemic. Here we go. Andy's in the house. Do you know, it's interesting. I was thinking to myself, this is the first time in my life mm-hmm. that I have ever attended church on an Easter Sunday at home on the internet. Now, here's what's interesting. I haven't always been a Christian, but before I was a Christian, the internet didn't exist. Terry, you know what I'm talking about, right? (laughs) 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 We're going there again. (laughs) I I can't help myself. I know you can. I know you can. Bring it on. Yeah. So at any rate, the internet exists now. (laughs) And yeah, so this is is a first. This is a first. Yeah. Well, I got a little something we're going to talk about this morning that happened just yesterday with our esteemed leader, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Mm. We've had leaders that I know of, like maybe even just looking at them right now, that have said kind of (laughs) very not so appropriate stuff, maybe, you know, like... The words why just come out. At, of, why are you looking? The, at me, <laughs> the words just kind of come out of the mouth, and then you realize afterwards, maybe it wasn't the greatest choice of words. Yeah, like you know, what, you don't want to talk about Andy. Yeah, because uh, Steve <laughs> Steve decided to leave in one of my my slips. You, so you have no idea how many times I make a fool of myself on this podcast. <laughs> And Steve conveniently edits it out. Oh my word! But in, is... he chose not to the other the other week. No, no, we needed to leave that one in just for sh- for sure, for sure. Yeah, there are many things that I cut out to save Andy's dignity. <laughs> <laughs> so good. Anyway, yesterday our prime minister did kind of the same foible. Well, he was talking about wearing masks, right? And he says basically it prevents you from breathing or speaking moistly on them. Wow. <laughs> and immediately, Moistly. immediately he knew, and he, afterwards he kind of says, that's not the, that's not the right words I should be using. <laughs> <laughs> All right, he said, that's not a great picture. Yeah. <laughs> Is that what he said? Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's going to be a meme thing now for a while. Right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was yeah. related to one uh, a song way back. Somebody put up... Um, Speaking moistly to you. There's a song, oh, really? yeah, oh, titled that way, back in the '80s by a heavy begun. metal rock band. Oh man! <laughs> but it, there's another word for it. Anyway, you, you you know how it is, Andy. Thanks, Terry. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I guess all the jabs I've taken at you, I I deserve this one. I'm gonna just let that. Sink oh, we're, in. we're gonna let it roll for yeah. a few more times. I think. <laughs> All right. All right. We're going to move into our talk with this morning, why I believe in the resurrection of Jesus. I just want to read one quote here. It's by Sir Lionel Lacku. He's a lawyer from a, a little ways back. He's passed away now, but he, he has 245 consecutive defense murder trial acquittals. So he's a big time lawyer. Many people say he is 
best lawyer in the world kind of thing, or he was. Anyway, he had this to say about the resurrection and the strength of the case of the resurrection. I've spent more than 42 years as a defense lawyer, appearing in many parts of the world, and I am still active today. I have been fortunate to secure a number of successes in trials, and I say unequivocally, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof, which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. Those are pretty strong words. That's pretty strong. So but, we're going to discuss this and uh, from a yeah. personal perspective here this morning. So, yeah. Yeah, we've, we've each had our own trials, if you will, as we've worked out our own faith and whether or not we believe uh, in the resurrection. And obviously, we've come to the conclusion that we do. And so, being that it's Easter time, we wanted to share with you the... You know, some of the main reasons why we do believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And I think this is an important subject to talk on this time of year because so often, pretty much every year, there is going to be some article released in some magazine that's going to cast doubt on the resurrection. And this happened one year for us. You guys remember this? When McLean's put out that article at Easter time that was raising doubt and and I, I just, I tell you, I've, I, it takes quite a bit to get me upset, but that got me upset because I'm reading this article that was highlighting this guy named Richard Carrier and his doubts that Jesus ever even existed. And that's what this article was on. And, and then they even went on to quote different historians such as Bart Ehrman, who aren't Christians and has their own doubts on different things, such as did Jesus, you know, rise from the dead. But Ehrman actually wrote an entire book saying, you know, did Jesus exist, in which he argues that Jesus does exist. And so, this article that then tries to use Airmen to try to prove Carrier's point was so, was so underhanded and was so deceptive that, man, it was really angering. And so, it's important that we talk on these, these issues because sometimes, you know, you'll have a magazine or a news article that will come out, and I just feel sorry for people who aren't in the know, who, who don't, you know, have the historical background or haven't read into the literature, and it can be so easy to get caught up into believing, you know, this guy, you know, there are only two historians that I know of in the world that will cast doubt on, did Jesus exist? And so, to have an entire article, you know, pushing Carrier's ideas, and then you trying to use others who disagree with them to try to prove the point, I mean, is just unbelievable. So, I think it's important that we just take moments like this at Easter just to remind us, you know, the incredible case that we do in fact have for the resurrection. So, to get into this topic, I think it'd be good just to begin by sharing, each of us, just sharing some of the reasons why we are in fact convinced. You know, not only that Jesus existed, but that Jesus in fact did die and raised from the dead. I think maybe to start would just be to quote Ehrman himself. So, here's somebody who once was uh, a Christian. He ultimately lost his faith and does raise doubts on the resurrection, you know, did Jesus rise from the dead? Interestingly enough, I think it's worth pointing out in his books, he does talk about the fact that his wife does believe and is a committed Christian. I even had this moment not long ago where I was having dinner with a well-known atheist and his wife was with us. And during the conversation, I found out that she, in fact, was a Christian and quite a committed one at that. And it's just one of those moments that reminds you that these topics are a lot more complicated than what sometimes that we give credit for. And 
there, there definitely is evidence on both sides of this as people debate it. But as we're going to talk about it today, though, uh, we're just going to be giving you reasons why we do believe. And, and, and I, start, I want to start off by quoting Ehrman in his book, Did Jesus Exist? Because I think this sets the stage for our discussion. And this is what Ehrman says. He says, there are several points on which virtually all scholars of antiquity agree. Jesus was a Jewish man known to be a preacher and teacher who was crucified, a Roman form of execution in Jerusalem during the reign of Roman Emperor Tiberius when Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea. Even though this is the view of nearly every trained scholar on the planet, it is not the view of a group of writers who usually labeled and often are labeled themselves mythicists. Uh, Steve, why don't you jump in here? Uh, What's one of the most powerful pieces of evidence for you that have brought you to the belief that that Jesus did, in fact, raise from the dead? Um, I try to take that more of a a cumulative kind of an approach, right? So you take different sort of facts surrounding the resurrection and then try to come up with some kind of an explanation that can account for all of those facts. But out of those historical data, the piece that I find the most puzzling, if you will, if I were to be a naturalist, if I were to be an atheist, for example, um, I think I would probably pick the one about how the disciples suddenly and sincerely came to believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, even though they had every reason not to. Um, In fact, N.T. Wright wrote a whole book on the resurrection just on that piece alone. And, uh, Even from there, the one that I find the most puzzling is James, the brother of Jesus. Because here is a guy, as John tells us in his gospel, was a skeptic. Like, he didn't believe that Jesus, his uh, older half-brother, is in fact the Messiah. But later down the road, you see him becoming a prominent leader in the church, and he is willing to die defending the claim that his older brother is in fact the Lord of the universe. When I speak on this topic, I often get people to kind of imagine, right? Hey, do you have a brother or a sister, right? What would it take for you to believe that your own brother that you grew up with or your sister that you grew up with is the Lord of the universe? You know what? Let's say, Andy, you know, like you have a brother or you you have sisters, right? Correct. Three of them. Three of them. Okay, let's say one of them comes up to you and says, hey, Andy, I don't know how to break this to you, man, but uh, I'm like the Lord of the universe, and you really seriously need to bow down and worship me. Like, what would you say at that point, right? I mean, clearly, you need to check yourself into a mental institution. And the last thing you would want to do, Andy, is being willing to die defending the claim that your sister is the Lord of the universe. So that piece alone is quite significant for me. It's some strong evidence for social distancing, I'll give you that for sure. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's interesting just to give some uh, some numbers to this, uh, and, and I, which I agree with you, by the way, Steve. This is such a powerful case. We see that in Mark 3 and John 7 that Jesus' brothers thought he was crazy. And we would as well, like you're saying, man, if my sisters you know, said that, it would be a strong case for social distancing. You would take some steps back, right? And you would call the, the authorities. Uh, I'm concerned. Yet, we read in Acts 1.14 that after the resurrection, Jesus' brothers, we see this James and Jude, they come to faith in him. And in fact, they even write books we have in the New Testament, the book of James, the book of Jude. But beyond that, the first century historian Josephus records 
that James, the brother of Jesus, died in the year AD 62 for his brother. He was stoned to death. That to me, like you're saying, Steve, is just mind-boggling. What would it take for you not only to become convinced that that's true, but you were willing to die for it by being stoned to death? And we have record that that, in fact, did take place. Not just do we have record, you know, in the Bible, we have record outside the Bible that this took place. Now, this is actually an interesting point that I should just bring up here. The Bible does not talk about, it talks about James coming to faith and Jude, but it doesn't talk about how they died. Now, this is an important point because for how significant of a figure they were in the church, if they had died, and we do have one disciple who, who dies, and, and he is, this is a different, this is a disciple, James, and he is recorded in the book of Acts. Yet, Jesus' brother, James, is not recorded in the New Testament that he died. The only reasonable explanation for this is he hadn't died yet. So, if we know from Josephus that James died in the year AD 62, then this is strong evidence that the New Testament was written before that. There are some people that are going to disagree with that, and I just think that they're wrong. You would find that that's in there. Now, maybe, you know, some people might quibble about whether or not the book of Revelation was written after that date. But another piece of evidence I'll just throw on top of this before I throw it back to you guys is that Jesus mentions and prophesies the destruction of the temple, but yet again, when we read our New Testament, and this is something historically we know did in fact take place, that the, the wars took place in the year AD 68 and the temple was destroyed in the year AD 70, but yet uh, there is no record of that in the New Testament. And then again, the only reasonable conclusion would be that these, these events hadn't taken place yet which is one of the reasons why I believe that the New Testament was written before AD 70. Yeah, because if you think about it, this is something that Jesus predicted would happen. And so, when this happened in 70 AD, right, I mean, this would have been a great apologetic for the divinity of Jesus and his claims, and yet you don't really read about the destruction of the temple, for example, in the book of Acts, nor do you hear read about, here's another piece, nor do you read about Paul's execution. And the book of Acts kind of ends rather abruptly, so some scholars think that the book of Acts itself may have been written before Paul's execution even, uh, let alone the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. But several years before that, Paul was executed, I believe 64, 66 AD, somewhere around there, beheaded by Nero is what I understand. But there is no mention of that. And here's Luke traveling with Paul and was a close friend. And yet in his volume in the book of Acts, uh, he doesn't mention it. So that's an interesting piece to, to follow. And I think we have to mention the other big skeptic, Paul himself, who was Saul prior to that, right? Yeah. I mean, he, he persecuted the church, and then there was an experience with God, and then he turned and he, he went to death, believing in what— uh, Or more specifically, an experience with the risen Jesus. Risen Jesus, yes. Yeah. yeah and yeah. it totally changes his life. For the rest of his life, and he dies for his beliefs in the end. Which is incredibly powerful evidence that— um, that is one of the reasons why I find the resurrection so persuasive, in fact. And that goes with the first point that you were making there, Steve. I'm just going to develop that a little bit more. It's important to remember that in the first century, that the Jews 
were under siege, if you will. They had been conquered. They saw themselves in a battle. They saw themselves in a fight. Yes, the Romans had conquered them and the Romans were under control and they were under Roman rule, but they hadn't given up. You know, this is where you see when the Gospels begin that John the Baptist comes on the scene and he's baptizing people into this repentance, which you need to understand is the Jews basically crying out to God saying, we're sorry for the sins that we've done. Will you please send your Messiah that we could raise up an army to fight against these people so that we can have our lands back? So when they're looking for this Messiah, which is, by the way, the Greek word Christ, and in Hebrew, it just means anointed one, and that's how the Jews crowned their king, if you will. They smeared oil on them. So they were looking for a Jewish king that would lead the people in revolt against the Romans and be victorious and have their land back again, just like it happened with the Maccabees. And this is their desire. But yet what you see in the story is Jesus keeps telling them, listen, I know that's what you want, but God's doing something greater. And what you see is that Jesus is pointing back to the very beginning of the story as humanity was conquered by evil and was born into the slavery of evil. And here Jesus is going to the cross to defeat evil, to defeat death. And this changes the way that the Jews, these disciples, viewed the world. It was a 180 change. And you have to appreciate, again, what would it take to convince you from one day that the Romans are your enemy to three days later that you are willing to love them, care for them, go to their home and see them placing their trust into Jesus. And you see this taking place in the book of Acts. And yes, there's at times they're wrestling through this, but that's the power of this message, that it transforms communities. It transforms people's lives, but it also transforms the way that we live as one. And it, be- and it creates the church. Before we continue, a message from Andy. Hi, everyone. This is Andy Steiger. I wanted to let you know that the 10th Annual Apologetics Canada Conference was a great success and that the conference recordings are now available. The recordings not only have all the sessions from the conference, including all the breakout sessions, but some bonus material as well. We have included a special class that Daryl Bach taught for us and Wesley Huff about how we got the Bible and can we trust the Bible. To purchase and download the recordings, go to Apologetics Canada. And now, back to the podcast. One particular uh, evidence that I think is quite interesting is the particular recording of eyewitness testimony. And the resurrection narratives talk about women as being the primary eyewitnesses to what happened. Mm -hmm. This is very, very interesting because women at that time were regarded on a very low scale. If people think that this was made up or a hoax, I don't think they would bring women into the narrative and be the primary witnesses for this account, right? So William Lane Craig says this. He says, women are the, were on a very low rung for the social ladder in first century Israel. There are old rabbinical sayings that said, let the words of the law be burned rather than delivered to women. And blessed is he whose children are male, but woe to him whose children are female. Women's testimony was regarded as so worthless that they weren't even allowed to serve as legal witnesses in the Jewish court of law. They were really nothing at that time. So to bring them into this narrative is really an interesting aspect. It raises the question, why? Why? Why would you do that? And I, I think the answer is just quite simply because that's what happened. 
And this is one of those aspects that you need to appreciate, especially if you've done much reading in some of these ancient documents that really are mythical and have, you know, these far-fetched ideas that they don't paint themselves in, in a bad light, right? If they're trying to make the case that Jesus rose from the dead or something like that, right, then they would try to make that case. That's a really good point, because if you actually look at later so-called Gnostic Gospels, so these are Gospels that bore uh, the names of the more popular disciples of Jesus, like Peter, Mary, Thomas, so on and so forth. In fact, if you read the Gospel of Peter, it's a resurrection narrative, right? And what you notice is women being removed as the original discoverers of the empty tomb. And later, when uh, Church Father Oregon was writing against Celsus, this pagan thinker, he was mocking Christians, uh, mocking Christianity as a whole, because, I mean, what, you guys have these discoverers of the empty tomb, and they're women, and they're actually mocking Christians because of that, right? So, you, that kind of shows you the general sort of the feel for the culture at large, and how they viewed women in terms of their reliability as, you know, witnesses in the court of law, or what they thought of women as, you know, like, are they uh, intelligent enough to to be able to carry these kinds of things. This is a good point, Steve. You've mentioned the Gospel of Peter. Just to give you a flavor of that, Jesus comes out of the tomb, and he's so tall, and his head is so big that it's in the sky. And you have this cross that's coming out behind him. It's this walking, talking cross that's talking theology and whatnot. And you, you really get this exaggerated view of this resurrection scene that has this theological push to it. One of the things that's so significant about when you read the Gospels is that they have a historical flavor to them. That They're seeking to give you the facts of what took place. So, why tell you that it was women who first saw Jesus? Because it was women who first saw Jesus, right? And you see these other aspects that further confirm to you that they're giving you the facts. And one of those examples that's always been powerful to me is how often it will put the disciples into a bad light. And you see this with Peter, for example, and actually all the disciples. They all abandoned him. And you could only imagine, right, as Peter's perhaps telling Mark, you know, as he's writing his gospel, hey, listen, when you get to that part, right, about me, you know, denying Jesus three times and even a little girl asked me and I, and I, and I buckle even under that pressure— Hey, could you just remove that? You know, when Jesus calls me Satan and tells me to get by, could you just leave that part out? Hey, Mark, can you save my dignity for me? <laughs> Remember when I'm trying to walk on water and I fall into the water? Could you just get rid of that? You know what I mean? It constantly is putting the disciples into a light of lack of faith and ignorance as well, where Jesus is teaching and they don't understand what's happening. And you just get this impression that it just it's given you the facts. Here's what took place. At the crucifixion site, the only disciples that were there were the women and John. Jesus says, Okay, John, you know, here's your mother, you know, mother, this is your son, kind of thing. Take care of my mother, right? Even as he was hanging on the cross, he was taking care of his mother. Um, but it, it just goes to show, you know, like all the disciples, all the guys are just hiding out, maybe except for John, but the people who were there were the women. And again, this is one of those things where it's just like the disciples are not being painted in a very good light. Often there are embarrassing details that are included in there. 
Another piece of evidence that's important to consider is how quick this message spread throughout the ancient world. Not long after the resurrection, you have Christianity showing up all over. And in fact, Tacitus tells us that it is rampant in Rome. And he's writing in the early part of the second century. And so by then, we're talking around the year 116, you've already got Christianity has taken root in Rome. And in fact, the Romans can't stand the the Christians, we're told by Tacitus. And there's a a Roman historian, and tells us that Nero tries blaming the, the fires in Rome on them, and they experience horrible persecution following this Christ. Now, one of the other things, too, that's kind of interesting here, and this is a piece of evidence not a lot of people are aware of, uh, so I just want to throw it in there because I find it so fascinating, and that is that there was some graffiti that was also found in the second century that was found in Rome of an image. Dates very early, like I'm saying, and it's an image of a man on a cross. It's, if you want to look it up, you can see it. It's called uh, Alexmenos Graffiti. And the idea here is under the graffiti, it reads, Alexamos worships his God. And what's fascinating about it is you see this person on a cross whose arms are stretched out. I think that's interesting because oftentimes you'll hear Jehovah's Witnesses or others say, oh, that, you know, it wasn't a cross, it was a pole. It was a stake, yeah. Yeah, or it was a stake or whatever. We've got graffiti that dates very early that tells you, no, it's a cross. He, and his arms were outstretched. But they, they've taken the, the head of this crucified figure and put on the head of a donkey. And so, what you're seeing is, is at that time in Rome is this feeling of, man, these Christians are a bunch of jackasses. That's literally what's being communicated. And you see this even in Tacitus. But there's this idea that, like, look, they think this Jesus guy is a god. And he's worshiping a god who was crucified on a cross that ultimately, they believe, rose from the dead. Because we've been living in a culture that's just saturated with the Judeo-Christian values that we don't often think about, okay, what was the Roman world like? What was the cultural context in which Christianity arose? And back in those days, greatness was not measured by being crucified, being executed as a criminal. Greatness was measured by military conquest. It was just a really barbaric kind of a thing, like how, how much... Power do you have? Yeah, how much power do you have? And here is the exact opposite of that that's coming on the horizon, right? Here is uh, the so-called Messiah. Again, even the Jews expected a military political leader like Moses. That's what they were expecting. And yet here he is, Jesus, hanging on the cross. By the way, the Jews would have considered that as, okay, this guy is clearly cursed by God, right? Because cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. That was their belief. And now they have to wrestle through this too, especially in a context where the, you know, the whole Roman Empire, that culture, they placed greatness on power rather than humility. And Jesus did the exact opposite of that. Yeah, a great place to read about this is Paul talks about this idea that Jews understood those who hung on a tree to be cursed in Galatians. Here's just an interesting piece to put together that was very persuasive to the Jews. And I think that this should be persuasive to us as well. And that is in Mark chapter 14, you read that Jesus is crucified for what? This is something a lot of people forget. You know, we'll celebrate Easter and everything. and We know that Jesus died on a cross, but we don't know why he died on a cross. You know, what did he do? 
that they determined was worthy of death and that they pleaded with the Romans to execute him through crucifixion. And the answer that we read in Mark 14 is that they found him to be a blasphemy, that he was claiming to be God. It was interesting for the Romans, they're like, okay, this guy's claiming to be, you know, the the king of the Jews, but the Jews are like, no, 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 it's more than that. He's claiming to be the king of kings. And Jesus then is being cursed for that. Being hung on a tree is to be cursed for that. Now, now this is where things get so interesting. It's because if Jesus is lying and he's claiming to be equal with God, then God should allow Jesus to die on that cross and to be cursed and mocked and humiliated in front of everyone for that horrible lie. Yet, what becomes so persuasive for the Jews is that God honors Jesus' claim, and we see this, by the way, in Mark chapter 2, the same thing happens. Jesus claims to be equal with God by forgiving sins. The people say, man, this is blasphemy. And Jesus says, let me demonstrate for you it's true. And he heals the man that, that, uh, that is lame. And now we're seeing an incredible demonstration of it saying, listen, I'm being crucified for claiming to be God, but I'm going to demonstrate for you that it's true. And he rises from the dead. And the Jews can't understand that in any other way than to see that God honored Jesus's claim and that he, in fact, is who he was claiming to be. One other evidence I think is persuasive and interesting is the basically the attestation of the empty tomb by those who were perpetrating this whole execution of, of Jesus, right, by the Sanhedrin. So they basically said that the body was stolen. That's interesting because if the disciples did steal the body, they would have known it was a hoax all the time. So why would they continue on in their life and, and to keep this a secret and die as time went on, right? That's That's a lot to keep. And, and to die for. <laughs> it is. And it would be weird. And it would be weird. See, because the Jews put people in tombs because they wanted their flesh to rot away and to just have their bones because they would put these bones into ossuaries. And then they would keep them in preparation for the resurrection. But this is completely different than what the Jews had anticipated. Here, Jesus is, has resurrected. That Jesus is walking, talking eternal life. It, why would they hide the body yeah. than to die for this, you know, ridiculous claim when they knew they would have known it was to be false and was not even what they were wanting to be the case? Yeah, I think the other piece to it is that everything this brutal act of execution of Jesus was it happened in Jerusalem. Right, this is a, a well-known place and. There's so much going on there. If the body was stolen, or even if the body was still in the tomb, all this would have came out. Yeah. yeah. Even the fact that the church actually began in Jerusalem, of all places, right? Where this was supposed to have taken place. Yeah. Now, this is something that Craig Hazen always points out. Um, for those of you who don't know who Craig Hazen is, he's the guy who started the um, the apologetics program at Biola University. He's the program director there, and he studied world religions. That's what his PhD is in religious studies. And one of the things that he points out is if you want to start a religion, you don't start with an objectively verifiable kind of a claim, a historical claim that this guy Jesus came back from the dead. Because then what happens is people can actually go check that out, right? So it's odd that the church where the central preaching in the early days, and still is really, is the resurrection of Jesus, they're saying that this Jesus was executed and he rose from the dead in Jerusalem, 
And the church started in Jerusalem, not in Rome, not in Alexandria, not even in Antioch, but in Jerusalem, where this was supposed to have taken place. And they're starting with an objectively verifiable claim, rather than something of a kind of a subjective teaching, right? Where, you know, the truth is in me, and I meditated, and I discovered the truth, and, and, and here it is. Or another case might be, hey, I received revelations, private revelations from an angel, uh, so on and so forth. But this one... Which would have been, is that's Islam, by the way. Right. But in Christianity, what we have is a church starting right in that city where the very foundational claim of that church, people can actually go and check things out for themselves. One of the questions that we often get here at Apologetics Canada is people ask us, hey, Andy, is there is there evidence outside of the New Testament about Jesus that's persuasive about, you know, such things as the resurrection or, you know, did he exist? And we have shared on this podcast, you know, a couple, like today, we talked about Josephus, we talked about Tacitus. But I think it's really important for us to remember that the New Testament is the best history that we have on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And in fact, this is even the view of Bart Ehrman. Again, I just want to quote a hostile source here in his book, Truth and Fiction in the Da Vinci Code. This is what Ehrman writes. He says, the oldest and best sources we have for knowing about the life of Jesus are the four gospels of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is not simply the view of Christian historians who have a high opinion of the New Testament and its historical worth. It is the view of all serious historians of antiquity of every kind, from committed evangelical Christians to hardcore atheists. And I would just encourage you that, you know, this is an important topic to talk about. You know, we've been looking about the resurrection and about Jesus and what took place there and good reason to believe that it actually took place. But a big question mark, of course, is can I trust the New Testament Gospels? I want to encourage you to check out a book called Can We Trust the Gospels by Peter Williams, or you can check out the podcast I did. Uh, I interviewed him at, at Cambridge University. You can check that out. But there is lots of good reasons to trust that the New Testament is, in fact, accurate, and that it is early, and that it is, in fact, a good source of information about Jesus and about what took place. In fact, one of the things I love that Williams does is you can read this on page 40 of the book. He talks about how we have more evidence to believe that Jesus existed than Emperor Tiberius. There is more earlier and better evidence. And so, this raises an important point as we close here. You know, it's interesting, we started talking about how often at Easter people will question whether or not Jesus even existed. But you need to appreciate what's happening when somebody does that. If you raise question over Jesus, whom we have the most historical evidence for in antiquity of their existence, even more so than Emperor Tiberius, then you raise into question all of that history. How do we trust that any of those people even existed? Because you've set the bar so outlandishly high that we can't trust anything then of, of antiquity. This is a good reminder to us that the Gospels are well attested to. We have good evidence of Jesus and that we can, in fact, trust that what has been recorded and delivered to us, what we have before us in our Bibles as we sit together at Easter time and as we read this Easter narrative, that we have good reason to believe that it is, in fact, accurate and what did take place, in fact, happened. And we have good reason to place our trust in Jesus, not only that he lived, that he died, 
but that he rose again. Well, we really hope that your family stays safe and uh, that you uh, continue with the social distancing and uh, you have a happy Easter, basically online. (laughs) Right? I think that's where everybody's going to be there this weekend. But we uh, hope that you have a great weekend together as your immediate family. Thank you for joining us, listeners. The AC Podcast and the Ministry of Apologetics Canada. And we'll come back next week with more things to think about. Thank you.